Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're reading The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on chapter 10. Chapter 10, Temptations of Terra Firma. I tried to find out how to get to Las Palmas to cable news of my arrival and make contact with the French and Spanish authorities. My friends reassured me, a car with the charming nickname of The Pirate would be available the next day to take me to the capital. Manuel was as keen as I was for me to get in touch with the authorities. He wanted to be relieved of his new encumbrance, or at least regularise the position with the customs and the police. A month or so earlier, a yacht called the Dandy, coming from Finland via Casablanca, had been wrecked on the same part of the coast. With the innocence common to fishermen in every country, those of Castillo del Romoral had salvaged most of the jetsam and had seen nothing wrong in quietly retaining the greater part of it. Manuel himself had had some difficulties with the coast guards, and he wanted no repetition of the trouble on my account. In the meantime, I had to get a night's sleep. The question was, where? In the school, there was no proper bed, but I stretched out on a table used for first aid purposes. There was not much given it, but no well-upholstered interior sprung mattress has given me a better night. The only trouble was that the earth seemed to have acquired a peculiar rocking motion, and at one moment I almost felt seasick. The next morning, 4th of September, the pirate was there waiting for me. Manuel protested loudly when I made an effort to pay him something. A final wave, and I was off. The island unfolded before me in all its savage splendour. Bare and menacing pinnacles of rock dominated what I took to be old lava beds, on which were perched enchanting little villages. Young girls with fresh faces were out drawing the day's water. Its supply is apparently the major problem of these fortunate isles. With arched backs and proud bearing, they seem to walk without effort, carrying on their heads the most diverse vessels, ranging from the classic earthenware jar to the corrugated iron drum. This part of the coastal plain is covered with banana trees, and I soon became familiar with the green, flat-leafed shrubs, condemned to a short life by their growth cycle. Each bush grows for one season, and then has to make way for its successor. One slash from a billy hook cuts short its ephemeral existence, leaving the shoot which has grown under its shadow to flourish for another short span. There are very few trees because of the shortage of water, but the date palms looked particularly attractive, accustomed as I had become to my watery desert. In due course, a twin-towered cathedral in the distance announced the proximity of Las Palmas. I had read about it in my pilot book, which described the church visible from the sea in such detail that my guides were convinced that this could not be my first visit. Las Palmas itself has a magnificent port, the Puerto de la Luz, one of the great harbours of the Atlantic. I went straight to see the harbour master, brother of a well-known heart specialist. He was expecting me. Some journalist friends from Le Petit Moroccan had flown over a few days earlier from Casablanca on the first flight of the Armagnac, a large cargo plane inaugurating a new service. They had looked out for me all the way over, and after seeing no sign of the raft, had made inquiries about me on arrival, so nearly everyone knew about my trip. 
Before embarking on the next and most vital part of my journey, I asked the harbour master to check my sextant to avoid any errors in calculation. With great pleasure, he replied. Certain newspapers reproduced this instant thus. He asked for some lessons in navigation. The harbour master refused, not wishing to contribute to his suicide. When this appeared in print, an engineer wrote to me offering the necessary instruction, a more practical way of preventing disaster. As I lost his letter, I was unable to thank him. If he reads these lines, I hope he will accept them as an expression of my gratitude. When I was still with the harbour master, the French consul came to look for me. It was the start of a delightful friendship. Monsieur Fano was a second father to me, putting me up in the consulate and introducing me to the charms of the island, although he himself had not been long in Las Palmas. When I went to his office for the first time, the most important businessman in the French colony on the island, Monsieur Bachelon, came in to make my acquaintance. We became an inseparable trio. Monsieur Bachelon constituted himself our mentor, and with his help all doors were opened to us. My circle of French friends was soon increased by the members of the Yacht Club. Unlike most such institutions, three-quarters of its membership consisted of real yachtsmen, and only a quarter of loungers. I cannot possibly name all of those who helped me, but I must mention Colacio, Caliano, and Angelito, who entertained me so charmingly and made my stay so delightful that it became almost impossible to take the final decision to leave. I decided not to return to France, but to stay about a week in the Canaries for minor repairs, putting everything in perfect order, rather than battle at home for additional equipment, even though it might have made things easier. The consul approved of this decision, but my other friends, Bachignon and above all the senior pilot Angelito, begged me to think things over carefully before setting off. I know the sea, Angelito said. What you have already done is magnificent. You have more than proved your case. But believe me, there will be no fish to catch in the middle of the Atlantic. Angelito meant well, but he did not realize that his objection was the one most likely to spur me on. If I had stopped then, there would have been more than enough people to say on my return, you have done very well, but it wouldn't work further out in the Atlantic. Off the continental shelf, there are no fish to catch. The second and more important part of my experiment was yet to come. I had already proved that it was possible to survive on raw fish. What I now had to demonstrate was that it was still possible to catch the fish in those parts of the ocean which orthodox minds contended were barren. The consul and Barchignon understood the reason for my determination and went out of their way to help me, the one in his official position, the other with his resources. I was only waiting for a telegram from Jeanette saying au revoir. It did not arrive for a day or two and I had time to cruise in a yacht towards Fuerteventura. Still nothing came. Finally, one morning a telegram arrived at the consulate, happy to announce birth of Nathalie. Our congratulations to the heretic. My new daughter must have recognised her responsibilities and made an effort to be there for the great day of departure. The temptation to return to France now became too great. I felt I could not possibly set off without seeing her. When I announced in the club my intention of paying a quick visit home, those who, out of friendship, had tried to dissuade me from continuing my trip 
thought that they had triumphed. Manuel, the old friend from Castillo de Romoral, made a special journey to the consulate to ask, Is it really true that Bombard is giving up? Fano gave him an evasive answer. At bottom, I believe they all thought, He is perfectly sincere when he says he is going to continue, but we can be sure that his wife will now stop him from embarking on this folly. Through the good offices of the consul, a place was booked for me on the direct Las Palmas-Paris plane, and on the 12th of September, I left. When I passed through Casablanca, a crowd of friends was there to greet me at the airport. There was a further surprise at Orly. Two journalists were waiting for me. Some of the newspapers were already saying that I intended to give up now that my child had been born. But nothing could shake the courage and faithful self-abnation of my wife. She was confident had seen me at work, knew that what I was attempting was possible, and understood my purpose, to save lives, thousands of lives. Not that she was happy to see me leave, but she saw the necessity for it, and knew that I must complete my voyage to prove my case. She made no attempt to restrain me. Then I was afflicted by the last act of what I have called the comic interlude, the day after my arrival, two gendarmes knocked on the house surgeon's door at Amiens. We wish to speak to you in private, they said to me. I remained silent. This is the point. There is a matter of 8,000 francs in cost to settle. You have not paid them, and you will have to come with us to the clerk of the court, or go to prison. For how long? I asked. Twelve days, they said, and showed an order for my arrest. I just did not have that much time to spare for prison, so I paid up the 8,000 francs, a splendid piece of financial assistance to the expedition. Freed at last from vexations, I spent three delightful, mollifying days. However, the newspapers took up again their cry of, he will not resume his voyage, while Palmer went on record in Tangier saying, it would be suicidal madness to set off from the Canaries at this time of year. The expedition was surrounded by an atmosphere of scepticism. The birth of my daughter was regarded as the decisive factor. In the meantime, I potted around, went to see a sick friend living near Poitiers, and then took the plane back to the Canaries via Casablanca. I wanted to spend a few days studying plankton in the research department of the Moroccan fishing board, and to go rather more deeply into the question of the fish I was likely to catch in the waters I was about to cross. I had also made up my mind to get a wireless receiving set. I had given up the idea of a transmitter, even if one were to be offered to me. My reasoning was this. I would be completely alone on board, because there was now no question of Jack rejoining me, and I had no intention of finding a successor. It would therefore have been extremely difficult, if not impossible, to work a generator while I was transmitting. In any case... I was incapable of repairing the smallest defect and one missed contact would have convinced everybody that I was dead. The strain on my family would have been too great. On the other hand, a receiver would be very useful. Longitude is determined by the difference between solar time at any given point and Greenwich Mean Time. There is a difference of four minutes for each degree of longitude, that is to say an hour every 15 degrees, and I could carry in my head the jingle Longitude west, Greenwich best. Longitude east, Greenwich least. A radio receiver would mean that I should not be completely dependent on my chronometer. I could check it against the radio time every day, 
but I would need a set able to stand up to the conditions. Unfortunately, funds were low. I would have to trust to luck. Perhaps in Casablanca someone would help me out, but I had hardly anticipated the warmth of my welcome. There were over a hundred people waiting for me at the airport, including an extremely attractive young lady with a bouquet of flowers in the colours of the city of Paris. There was a fine old regular naval officer, an expert in life-saving at sea, who had taken up the cudgels in my defence when someone had said to him, it is prayer books he needs, not navigation manuals. He told me that the newspaper Le Petit Marocain, indignant at my episode with the two gendarmes, had opened a subscription list to pay my fine. The first donation had come from Admiral Sol, naval commander-in-chief in Morocco, and the total was growing fast. At last, I was going to be a man without a police record. One might call it the end of the comic interlude. I was inundated with invitations, with the navy well to the fore. My friend, Pierrot, lent me his flat. The fishery board welcomed me with open arms, and I started to look for a radio. At least, I suffered no loss of weight. One group of friends who invited me to dinner at eleven o'clock were surprised at my lack of appetite. They did not realise that, in order not to offend anyone, I had already accepted one dinner invitation for seven o'clock, and there is a limit to one's appetite. The problem of the radio was soon solved. My friend, Alessage, and his alter ego, Frassines, offered me a superb battery set which is still in front of me as I write these lines. They had made for it a completely watertight nylon cover, which even protected the telescopic aerial. They went so far as to present me with certain small rubber articles, usually used for another purpose, in which to keep dry the silica salts, which I was to use for dehumidifying its interior. As a final honour, I received an invitation one morning to visit Admiralty House. I was received by a small, brisk gentleman dressed in tropical whites, who, with all outward friendliness, subjected me to searching interrogation. He questioned me about my aims and my means, set me navigational poses, and, in other words, extracted every ounce of information. I can only record now what pleasure the Admiral gave me that day. I had been waiting for a long time for someone in authority seriously to seek the truth of what I was about. At the end of this friendly but searching session, the Admiral said to me, We understand what you are after, and we are going to help you. It was thanks largely to this admiral that I had the feeling every time I met a foreign ship, Spanish, British or Dutch, that I was a unit of the French Navy. He gave me his own marked Atlantic navigation manual and he was the only professional sailor to write to me before I left. You will succeed. Scriptum Manon, Admiral, as you knew when you did me the honour of writing a dedication on my chart. There were as well two other sailors who sent me encouraging farewell letters, Jean Marien, author of Navigateurs Solitaires, and Jean Laurent, director of the Laboratory of Hydraulics, who wrote, When you have succeeded, which you will. But the time had come to leave. Casablanca was becoming so attractive that every day increased the wrench of departure. On the 5th of October, I took the plane for the Canaries. We landed at Tenerife and I was soon back in Las Palmas. There, another fortnight was taken up by the efforts of friends, nature, sport, and music to detain me. The music was that of the concerts and the theatre, the friendship that of the yacht's crews I remembered so well, of Maver and Nymph Errant, which had arrived during my absence. 
Such is the marvellous fraternity of the sea that I remember one evening in the Nymph Errant when the eleven yachtsmen were made up of nine nationalities, three Englishmen, an American, an Italian, a Spaniard, a Swiss, a Dane, a Dutchman, a Frenchman, and an Australian girl. Nature exerted her charm through excursions to Cruz de Tella and Agate, in company with my charming guides, Calmano and Colacio, and the sporting attractions included our sessions at the swimming pool, where the adorable lady champion of Spain gave her dazzling exhibitions, and I was beaten in a 200 metres crawl by that dynamic elder, Monsieur Boteau, père. Watch out, Alain, if you stay too long, you will never have the strength to leave. This thought came to torment me during long, sleepless nights, but there was nothing to be done. The wind was still in the south. Until it veered, there was no point in starting. Perhaps a new moon would bring some improvement. Finally, on the 18th of October, the wind changed, and I announced that I would leave the next day. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.